Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. I'll let Alex take it from there. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no, about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then some Sadducees, who say they are, there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man dies, that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, is the resurrection when they rise, whose wife will she be? for all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning book passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? 
and the common people heard him gladly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the scripture, the passage here that is before us, for your spirit that's, that's with us, that's in us, and God, for your heart that is for us. We just come before you this morning in great need, but also with great expectation to encounter you, to hear from you, and not just in a transactional way. God, we're here for you. But we started with a, with a song. We started by singing because we just want to tell ourselves. We want to tell each other. We want to tell you, God, that we love you. We just center our hearts around you this morning. God, it's so easy to have everything else on our mind but you. So we just put you on the forefront of our minds right now. We recognize your presence with us, your goodness, God, your glory. We just praise you this morning. We ask that you'd bless our time here as we uh, are going to study your word for the remainder of our gathering. And we just ask for your Holy Spirit to be heard, to be known. Holy Spirit, come and minister and use this time for your purposes. Pray you'd use me and that you would speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have your seat. Good morning. And as you're having your seat, maybe grab a jacket if you got one nearby. Just want to tell you, this is not our church building, in case you didn't know on the way in. This is a middle school. And uh, we actually don't have any central control over what's going to happen with the temperature in this room. And I'll tell you what, this is a good problem, because typically it's the opposite. And uh, it looks like this week, um, you know, this week was such a weird weather week, wasn't it? Like, to say the least. It was like a hurricane, you know, that, and then uh, you had this just beautiful day from the Garden of Eden show up yesterday or the day before, and so without the sun beating down, uh, I think, on the system all, all week, we just got a, a cooler morning, but we're going to pray for the warmth of God's presence to keep it nice and right. Amen? Okay. All right. You don't have to really believe that. That was corny, but... Um, yeah, welcome, everyone. Good to be back with you guys. Good to see you. Just want to... Um, uh, just re-emphasize, too, all the things that Kyle mentioned on your way in, and, and you have your bolt in there that covers most of that. Those two big ones, though, that aren't in there that Kyle said, baptism and, and uh, the relief uh, opportunities for Hurricane Ian. Uh, and I wasn't sure if you caught it. I just want to remind you, too, today from 3 to 5, we'll also still be collecting items. If you weren't able to catch that coming into this morning, you still have some time here in the day up until 5 o'clock. Uh, you could drop those off at our ministry center. If you have any questions about that, you could stop by our Connect table. But... Uh, anyway, uh, here we are back in the Gospel of Mark, and if you'd like to take note, why don't you go ahead and jot this down. The title of uh, the, the talk today from this passage is The Way Jesus Replied. Each week, uh, we are, as we are going kind of just classically through this chapter by chapter, uh, section by section, uh, we are observing the multifaceted ways of Jesus. Uh, what would Jesus do is the classic question and bracelet. Or, or what was Jesus like? What was the way in which he lived? I mean, what was he truly like? There are so many different perceptions and ideas about Jesus because, you know, especially today, because he's the most famous figure in all of history. And so, so much of it's conflated or twisted or they're caricatures of him. And I'm not just talking about like them out there. I'm talking about us in here. It's so easy to just come to Jesus with our own assumptions about him. Things that, not so much that scripture's taught, but things that maybe culture has led us to, to catch, things that we've caught. And so we want to come to uh, 
the Bible, and we, we're doing this as a rhythm every Sunday. We, we're coming to the gospel, specifically here, the gospel of Mark, with, with fresh eyes. That's what we want to have, like open hearts, fresh eyes, humble hearts that are willing to learn in truth who Jesus really is. And I want to say, whoever Jesus is, here's why this is important for you. It's good news for you and I. Amen? Like whoever Jesus is, is good news for you. It's something that you should seek to to want to discover. And so we're diving into that good news. In fact, that's what gospel means. This is the good news of Mark, the gospel of Jesus. Mark focuses especially, there's four biographies on Jesus' life. Mark is the one that focuses mostly on the way in which he lived and how he acted. And uh, here in Mark, if you remember this too, if you guys have been coming, this is all review. You could probably regurgitate all this back to me by now, but that's intentional, okay? Uh, Mark 1 through 10, chapters 1 through 10 covers three years. In fact, the three final years, you could say, in Jesus' life. It's the three years of his earthly ministry, inaugurated with his baptism. Um, And then it transitions here after three years, chapter 11. This is really interesting, 11 through 16, kind of the last third of the book is just seven days. It's the last week in Jesus' life, the most important week in human history. It's called Passion Week or Suffering Week. Uh, It starts with Jesus on Sunday riding in uh, to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It culminates, obviously, in Good Friday. You have Holy Saturday, and then you have Easter Sunday where Jesus resurrects. And so that's what we're looking at. The Gospel of Mark has been called um, a Passion Narrative, with an extended introduction. I love that. Ten chapters, just introing and getting us ready for this massive week. And so, yeah, we've been uh, hanging out with Jesus here on the last week of his life, seeing what's going on. Um, And guess what? We're still on Tuesday. You ever had a long Tuesday, anybody? Jesus has had a long Tuesday. This has been a long day. Um, What's made it so long is what he's been doing all Tuesday long. I've never been a particular fan of Tuesday. I just want to say this. Monday gets a lot of crud. That's a Christian version. Um, I like Monday. I don't know what it is. People are like, people just have, I got a case of the Mondays. I got usually a case of the Tuesdays. I don't know. Tuesdays for me are just exceptionally weirder. I'm just like, what is this day? We're in the middle of nothing here. What's going on? This is nothing. This isn't even in my notes. I don't know why I'm saying this, but... I think me and Jesus can have a bond here because his Tuesday's not going super fun. And here's why, and this is what, what makes any day long and, and can make any life hard. Jesus has been dealing with what we could simply call relational conflict all day long. Is there anything more draining than relational conflict that's prolonged? Jesus has been dueling all Tuesday long. He's been going back and forth dueling with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of his day. They're coming against him. Let me give you a little bit of context. We're on Tuesday, but remember Sunday? Sunday is an epic moment in history, prophesied about all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus, the Messiah, comes humble and lowly, riding on a donkey, making his royal procession as king right into Jerusalem. There's a parade. There's a celebration. The people are rejoicing. Hosanna, Hosanna, the Messiah is here and we're calling on him to save. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, there's this, I mean, think confetti and streamers. It's a big celebration. He goes right into the heart of, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the heart of Israel. The heart of Jerusalem is the temple. Jesus goes right in. 
He, he makes his way right into, because this is important, this is the heart of Israel's spirituality. This is the center of their worship. How things are going on in the temple, which is where people are to meet with God and worship God, represents how Israel's doing as a whole. When Jesus goes into the temple, he surveys, he takes a look around. And what does he see? Well, he doesn't see worship that's done in spirit and truth. He doesn't see justice. He doesn't see the kingdom of God really at all. He sees corruption. This is one of the saddest things to see. Something intended for worship, corrupted and used for something wicked, right? And what what exactly am I referring to? Well, we know that at this point, there are a bunch of people that have turned the temple into a marketplace. And they're price gouging, and they're exploiting people's spiritual needs. And essentially what's happened is you have ministers who are monetizing the ministry is what's going on there, turning it into a market. And so what does Jesus do? I love this. This is Sunday. He goes, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home. I'm going back to Bethany. I'm going to go pray. I'm going to rest. That is a sermon for me, if not anybody else. I'm not sure. I I tend to be really keen on just jumping on the problem right in the moment with all the raw emotion that I'm feeling. And I usually justify it as like, this is totally from the Lord, this anger. And he needs me to inflict his wrath upon this person right now. I feel it. I'm going to act, right? I love that Jesus doesn't react. He responds. He goes home. He gives it a night. He comes back the next day. And that's Monday. Talk about a case of the Mondays. Jesus comes up on a Monday and he cleanses the temple right? He drives out all the wickedness, literally physically. He causes a ruckus. We talked last week about a disruption, right? He comes in, he's flipping over tables, he's throwing chairs around. Jesus is passionately disrupting this corrupted system of worship, not to get attention, but to bring it back to its intended use, to drive out the wickedness. And I love that Matthew tells us after he does this and all that that junk is pushed out, People come to Jesus in the temple and they're healed. Isn't that awesome? He's like, we need to make way for the kingdom of God. Because people need to encounter God. Um, And and so this is Monday. Now, it's not just, we learned this last week, it's not just the system of worship that's being disrupted. It turns out that as Jesus is disrupting this system, In doing so, he's also disrupting the systems of authority that are presently in place, the spiritual powers that be, the ones who are supposed to be spiritually in charge, and Jesus just walks in there, no local positional authority. He doesn't kind of come up in the ranks of their system of who gets to be in charge and who doesn't. Jesus has what's greater, moral authority. He has authority from heaven. It's not from man, but it's from heaven. And so Jesus comes with authority. What he's doing is authoritative He's speaking with authority. He's bringing the very authority of God into the situation, and they're not too happy about that. It's threatening to them, actually. You're threatening our position. Jesus, you're making us look bad. It's like, well, no, you made yourself look bad, by the way. All this is bad. I'm just bringing attention to it, and they don't like that very much. Jesus comes back on that next Tuesday, and this is where this long day starts, And those that were frustrated with him, those spiritual leaders who are now threatened by this disruption, they're they're coming against Jesus. And Jesus speaks a parable against them. If you weren't here last week, you got to check this out in Mark 12. This incredible parable that Jesus tells about 
a vine, uh, a vine owner, a vineyard owner, who leases it out. He's the owner, and he leases it out to some vine dressers who come in to kind of take over. That's meant to be the spiritual leaders. And the, there's this whole parable about how throughout the, the, the centuries, the spiritual leaders that were in place in Israel for God's people, they were unfaithful to their job, and they would even kill the prophets that God would send to them. They, they didn't have hearts submitted to God. Jesus tells this parable. The, and this is my favorite thing because, I, I, yeah, I love Jesus. And the, when, when there's moments like this that make me see Jesus in a new light, I just I get stoked on it. So one of my favorite things about this parable is Jesus is telling this parable publicly, like before everyone. Jesus is putting these homies to public shame is another way to say that. All right? Everyone's looking on like, oh, my gosh, did you, did you see that? Did you see what he just said that? Like, it's kind of like that. It's one of these really embarrassing moments. In fact, here's what it says. We, this is the last thing we read last week. It says that these religious leaders, they were so offended by Jesus that they sought to lay hands on him. This is not like they're going to pray over him. We're going to lay hands on you, Lord. All right? This is the other kind of laying on the hands. They're like, you're trying to catch these hands. That's what, that's what they're saying here. But they feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. They want to kill Jesus. They want to kill him. They want to squash the whole Jesus thing because he's threatening their thing. But they can't. They can't, number one, because, well, uh, it's illegal. Can't kill people. Don't do that. In that culture, Rome had the power of the sword. So they had no ability of their own to just legally kill Jesus. But worse of all for them, they feared the multitude. I mean, these were crowd pleasers. And they were like, man, the problem here is, is their approval ratings are going to go down, you know? Like, all they care about is public opinion, and it turns out public opinion is very in favor of Jesus. So they're like, okay, we can't touch him. So this is what we just read. Alex just read it to us. By the way, Alex, great job. Where's Alex at? She had to go home. That's okay. We're going to pray. For I, would, I would go home and go to sleep after reading that much, too. I love that she went home. That is just awesome. Sorry. Um, that is just so awesome. Um, she is a mom of many kids. She really stepped it up. Alex, you're not here. Maybe you're watching online. We love you. Great job. You did great. Can we clap it up for Alex? Yeah. Are our worship leaders here? Did they go home? Is Ben any? You guys? Okay. Kyle? Anyone? Okay. Sorry. It's funny. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. Alex did a great job reading that. Um, the passage we read is basically this last-ditch effort that they have to try to get Jesus, try to get him out of the way. They're, he's a rock in their shoe. And, and their attempt here, like, here is their plan, okay? We read this in Mark 12, 13. They sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, which, quick cultural background, these are cultural enemies, cultural enemies, Okay, but they're united together because they have a common enemy. So they wouldn't be caught uh, dead talking to each other in public. They represent the opposite, like whatever in your mind is the opposite ends of the political aisle in our country, that's what this is. Okay, so like they sent AOC and Ben Shapiro to hang out together. <laughs> All right. What? To catch him in his words. Do you see this? So, so they're trying now because here's the idea. It's like we can't, 
We, we can't defeat him with might, so let's try to beat him with mind. That's the idea. Not a good battle plan. This is Jesus. But they have an attempt. They go, here's what we need to do. We need to try the good old classic trip and trap. The trip and trap. We need to try to publicly, just like he publicly shamed us, let's publicly shame him. Let's try to do that. Let's try to ask him. We're going to send our best. We're going to send the best of the best that we have. Okay? And we're going to try to overcome him and trip him up mentally with some really hard questions and trap him in his words and catch him in his words so that the crowds would have gone and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe Jesus isn't all that he's propped up to be. And so that's exactly what they do. They send them uh, their best. And that's, what, that's the section we read. You have these three teams, okay? This is like their spiritual religious Navy SEALs that they're sending at Jesus. First, we're going to send you the Pharisees, and they're going to come to you with a big, hard, like, no big deal. They're going to come to you with, like, the Christian Jesus political question. Not tough. Next, we're going to send the Sadducees, okay? And they're going to come to you and ask a philosophical question that's also a biblical question. I mean, these are all theological questions, but the Sadducees are going to come, and they're going to try to trip him up with a, with a philosophical question. We know Jesus knows the Bible, but let's see if he's really wise and smart. And then if that doesn't work, we're going to send Jesus our experts in the law, the scribes. They were the ones who were masters at the law. All 613 of the laws that are in the Torah and beyond, actually. We'll send him, and it's almost like I want you to see each of these guys, they represent a test that is sent to Jesus. And they're questioning him. They're trying to trap him and trip him. And spoiler alert, in fact, it's not a spoiler. We just read it. Um, as they come to Jesus, remember the title of the teaching, the way Jesus replied? Okay. What does Jesus do when they come to him? He waxes the floor with them. It's awesome. Uh, Jesus gives what we'll call a master class. A master class in how to thoughtfully and wisely respond Respond to someone who's coming against you in your faith. I mean, truly what it is. I, it, when I think of what Jesus did as a master class, as they send him these tests, Jesus to me represents what Peter calls us to do. Peter says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, set apart your hearts to the Lord, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers... Those who revile your conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, I was, like, this is like, by the way, have you ever heard of the study of apologetics? You ever heard that word, apologetics? Growing up as a Christian, I'd be like, I got to learn apologetics. People would tell me, I'm like, why do I, I need to apologize for being a Christian? What does that even mean? I got to learn how to be apologetic? Like, I'm sorry, I love Jesus. Like, what does that mean? The word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which is right here for reason. The apologia or the defense is the other word a defense, the apologia for everyone who comes to you. And they, they're going to come to you, and, and there's a hope that what, what you believe in your heart makes some sense in your mind, and they're going to question what you believe. And, and we as Christians are called to not just condemn people for asking hard questions. I mean, even Jesus doesn't do that. Even though he knows their hearts and he calls out their hypocrisy, he's prepared. He's studied to show himself approved. He hasn't relied on the pastor to be the theologian. Like, come on, this is, this is the priesthood of all believers. We're in the new covenant. Anybody else with me? Like, the, the future of the church in America belongs to Christians who have been thoughtful about the truth. 
Did you hear that? That's the future. Christians who have actually been thoughtful, not passive. Like, passivity, it's, it's certainly not going to get you through the evangelism goal that we have to reach the world that has really hard questions. And I want to say, too, like, if you want any, like, if you walk through any real trial, passivity is going to cause you to ask, like, those trials will cause you to ask some questions. And so scripture, like, calls us to come deep into the book, to really be ready. Like, ask yourself that question. Like, am I ready? Am I ready? If someone were to come up to me, even if they have an ill motive, am I ready to, to reply with truth? That's a really great exhortation. You know, growing up, I always, like, this verse was always used to just be like, you know, apologetics. But the context is more like Jesus. You got some adversaries. Like, this is interesting. People that don't want you promoting your faith, believing your faith, they, they want to squash the Christian faith. And I love that, that there's a call here to do it with meekness. Isn't that important? We forget that part. You know, yeah, I waxed the floor with them like Jesus at work yesterday. You know, I'm the best. You know, it's like I slam them for the Lord. You know, it's like chill out, okay? Love them. The goal, by the way, of, of evangelism is not winning an argument. It's winning a person. It's winning a person. We want to win people. And so we come to them with meekness and fear. We have fear over their, their eternal future. We have a sense of humility, and we're like, I'm not coming to you with, as the source of all knowledge. I'm coming to you as one who knows who is the source of all knowledge. But I've got to be ready. Now, Jesus models this masterfully, and I better get into the sermon actual body because it's, it's as dense as could be today. You know, but just one more thing you know, by way of extended introduction, as I like to do. Um, Jesus also says this. I love this verse. He's kind of modeling this, too. He tells his disciples in the future when they're going to be persecuted for their faith. Have you ever seen this verse? He says, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you're going to answer when people come against you. I love this promise for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. We just ask for that, God, in our culture. That, Lord, you'd give us a mouth and wisdom that comes from you, not earthly, sensual, or demonic, but from heaven, God. That you'd give us wisdom, which all our adversaries won't be able to contradict or resist. That's for you. That's for you. That's for me. Now, this part's interesting, right? Don't think about what you're going to say. You're like, oh, okay, that just, didn't First Peter, well, that was scaring me, the whole be ready thing? Okay, good, I don't have to be ready. I like that. I'll just show up. Never, never read my Bible in my life, but I'll get the word from the Lord. Get some intel. Zap me, Lord. Okay? That's not what that's saying, okay? This literally means, like, don't, the idea here is being in the flesh to where you're, like, re rehearsing. You ever rehearse the conversation before it happened? Come on! Do it all the time. I'm like, okay, if they say this, and I, or the best is when you re-rehearse it after it happened, and you're like, I should have said this. And you like want to call them back, like, hey, for, uh, can we start the conversation again? Can we redo that? Jesus is saying here, like, he's not saying don't be prepared. Obviously, he's taught the disciples. Scripture says be ready. But, but the idea here is don't be so rehearsed in the flesh of what you're going to say that you actually aren't also open to the Holy Spirit who wants to fill you and use you and give you words that you can't come up with on your own. This happens all the time. Like, this is preaching, I feel like. I, I do my best. To prepare, but I'm like, Lord, um, you know, Paul says the Lord stood with me in his ministry. I'm like, God, just don't leave me alone up here. Can you please be up here with me it's for the sake of the church and your glory um, and, and give me the words I need? And so 
the way Jesus replied. Okay, so that was just a little extra sermon inside the sermon. Now, Jesus is modeling this tongue of wisdom that his adversaries can't rebuke. Um, and he's also mastering being ready to give a defense to these, again, these three Three homies. Let's look at each of them. The first we saw was the Pharisees. All right, so now we're just going to observe this. This we, we kind of have an idea. Let's observe this in the text. The three ways that Jesus replied to these these testers, these questioners that are coming against him. The first are the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the religious elite. They were young. They were smart. They were studied. They were spiritual. They were law keeping. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. It says they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And here's what the Pharisees bring to Jesus. Here's the question they have for him. Teacher, they start by trying to get him to let his guard down by flattering him. Okay, We know that you are true. They don't believe this. And care about no one. That's true. He's like, I don't care about you. Um, I love you, but like, I don't care about what you think of me. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Jesus, you are truth, and your words are truth. They're thinking they can like somehow disarm Jesus by flatter him, flattering him. This is flattery. This isn't a compliment or encouragement. It's flattery. And they ask him the question, the age-old question about government. But in this culture, it meant a lot. Is it lawful to pay our taxes? Another way of saying this is Jesus, are, are God's people, Yahweh's people, is Israel obligated or expected by God to pay their taxes to Caesar, to Caesar. Um, the, the tax that's being referred to here, Caesar had a lot of taxes. It was a real, uh, it's a real Caesar salad of taxes. It was a, it was. I just thought of that. It was that was the tongue of the Lord right there. Thank you, Lord. Right there was, there was general income tax like just like we have in our. Don't you get by the way? Don't you lo- who raise have you love taxes? Just love. Yeah, I thought so. Right. This is just an age-old, centuries-old issue that we've all struggled with, taxes. In that culture, you, you, you know, we can have our own discussion about modern-day taxes. In that culture, you had your income tax, which is your general 1%. That's what it was in that culture, 1% of your income. You had your temple tax as a Jew. If you lived in the north, you also had to pay an additional. This is a third. Uh, you had to pay a tax to Herod. You had to pay Herod's tax. And this tax here refers to, at this time, the poll tax which was basically just a f- additional to all of that. This is a, f- um, a full day's wage that everyone was obligated. Despite your income level, no matter who you were, uh, you had to pay this full day's wage tax to the government. And that's what they're bringing to Jesus. Now, in that culture, this question, like, should I pay taxes to the oppressor, Rome, who's occupying Israel? This was more, like, taxes in that culture were more than just a blow to the wallet. This was a a deeply um, emotional issue. There were were the zealots at the time. These were the Jews that refused to pay taxes. They were enemies of the state. Um, They were on the, the, uh, Rome's most wanted list, okay? Because they wouldn't pay taxes to Rome because to pay tax... Would, would mean that I acknowledge your authority over me. Does that make sense, right? You ever felt that? You're like, I'm not going to pay the government. They don't have authority over me. They do, actually. But anyway, the Bible talks about that, too. We'll get there. Um, 
And there's a feeling in which, like, it's deeply emotional to pay this tax. Taxes are emotional. There's like, ah! But this is an acknowledgement of your authority. The idea is, like, you know, Israel is, for a modern-day illustration, Israel is losing on their home court. Okay? Israel, this is, they have, you think they would have home field advantage. They're at home, but they're losing to Rome on their home court. And they don't, they don't want to acknowledge that, uh, the oppressor. Beyond that, it was a deeply spiritual issue. Because the, the, the coin that Jesus is referring to, the denarius, um, as Jesus will, will point out, it's, it has a graven image on it. And in fact, it's not just a graven image, a graven idolatrous image. Uh, Caesar's image was on the coin. On the back, it actually had this inscription about uh, Caesar that he was the son of God. And so there's a sense in which these people are like, what do we do? If we pay taxes, it's like we're complicit in idolatry. Does that make sense? Are you guys following me? It's a lot. You guys with me? All right. This is a deep question. This is a hard question. In fact, like, it makes sense that this was their first one. I think this was plan A. Then we see plan B and C, and it kind of just gets progressively harder to trap Jesus. But this is like the one, because I want you to think about how hard this is for Jesus. If Jesus says yes... Jews are obligated to pay taxes to Caesar. Uh, then if, if it's simply that, if he just goes, yeah, then what's going to happen? The, the, the religious leaders win. Because then public opinion is like, whoa, whoa, he acknowledges the oppression. He's with them. You know, there's kind of this idea where they could use that. Now, if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes. Wouldn't that be awesome if Jesus said that? Anyway, um, <laughs> if he says no, he goes, now, here's the problem. Now... What do the religious leaders have? They have a crime that they can bring to Rome and leverage to crucify and execute Jesus. So look at how Jesus replies as they ask him, shall we pay or shall we not? But he, knowing their thoughts, sorry, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? And I love this. Jesus goes, bring, bring me the coin. Bring me a denarius, the thing you, you're obligated to pay. And, and they brought it to him, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, here's what's so genius about Jesus here. Caesar is the most famous person in the world. And he goes, who's that? It would be like if I was like, let me think of like a non-controversial. Like if I was like Donald Trump, okay? If I was, <laughs> if I was like, if I held up a coin with with Donnie's face on it. And I was like, and I went, who's that? Who's that? Now, he's getting them to think about the question they're asking. And they reply, they were like waiting for a yes or no. I love that Jesus doesn't give them the yes or no. That's usually the bait. Like, let's just get them to say yes or no. Jesus asks them, as he often does, he replies to the questioner with a question. It's deeper. Whose image is on this? And they go, that's That's Caesar. What's up, Corey? That was awesome how you appeared from there. That was incredible. Sorry. I was like, we good? All right. Jesus says to him, I love this. This is so cool. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It says, and they marveled at him. In the Greek, their heads exploded. Okay? It doesn't actually say that. Jesus blows their mind. They try to trap him, and they're left marveling at him. I love Jesus. Um, so insightful. Jesus looks at the coin. He goes, whose image is on it? Well, it's Caesar's. He goes, well, that belongs to him. 
And if you're going to play Caesar's game, you've got to pay Caesar's tax. That's how it works. It's not, it's not yours. It's, not, it's his. Give it to him. It's his tax. That's his image. That belongs to him. Give to him what belongs to him. And let me say, like, Scripture gives guidelines for that as even New Testament Christians. Romans 13 says, you know, as long as it's not compromise of faith, we're to subject ourselves to government, to obey the ruling authorities, to obey the laws of the land. There's a place for government. But notice the next part. But give to God, this is great, give to God the things that are God's. Do you see the picture here? So you give Caesar the coin because his image is on the coin. You give to God what's his. What's that? Your life. Why? Because his image is on your life. This belongs to Caesar. Why? His image is on it. You belong to God. Did you know that? You know that you belong to God? You know that he made you? Not we ourselves, not you. He made you. He fashioned you. He created you. Do you know that he put his thumbprint upon your life with his very image that says you belong to him? He, was, he created you on purpose, for a purpose, in his image, with dignity, with value, with worth, with special gifts and a personality and, and passions and tendencies and quirks. You're made in his image. And just like that inscripted coin has the name and the image of Caesar upon it and belongs to Caesar, Jesus is saying, your life has the name and has the inscription of God upon it, and it belongs to God. This is beautiful. Paul echoes this especially for Christians in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? We're talking to Christians now. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have from God, and you are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. We've given up the rights to our, our own ownership. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We render to God that which is God's. It's interesting here. There's a, there's a beautiful call to surrender, to give God my everything. And certainly this was to the, the Pharisees at that time who were not surrendered to God with their lives. There was, like we tend to do, there's categories of their life that they were still holding on to and trying to maintain control of, right? Is there an area of your life where you're prone to maintain control of? Your life is not your own, but you tend to act like it is. That's what was happening. But, but Jesus is calling them to this whole heart-level surrender. It's also a great just principle here of navigating politics um, as a, a follower of Jesus, especially. What the scripture says is there are some things that belong to God, and there are some things that belong to government. Jesus doesn't act like there's, there's not a, a, a call to be involved in local government. In fact, in the country, the great land that we live in, with the great freedoms and opportunities we have to be a part of a government that's by the people and for the people, we have great also um, responsibility to steward the freedoms we have that, that other people don't have. And we're, we're called to engage. How we vote matters. How we live matters. How we think about cultural issues matter. If we love our neighbor, we're not going to be politically passive. If we love our neighbor, we're not going to be politically passive about matters that affect them. Like all the way from the top level down to your HOA. You know what I'm saying? You got that HOA system? All right? I'm sorry if you do, but... We care about our neighbors. So there's an involvement in local authority. There, there's an involvement there. But Jesus, I love this. There's some things that belong to government, but there's some things that don't belong to government. They belong to God. Don't give to government what belongs to God. Ultimately, God owns our lives. I mean, if there's a simple heartbeat here, our ultimate allegiance should never, ultimate allegiance, ultimate, keyword allegiance should never be to any earthly authority. 
In fact, we will never be good citizens of any earthly authority unless our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. So in our ultimate allegiance to Jesus, giving our lives to God, we then engage in culture as servants of the culture, of servants of the political system, as those who belong to God and not the system. Not the, we, we're not, our allegiance isn't ultimately unto man. Is this making sense? You following me here? I know this is kind of all over the place. Thanks for bearing with me. But this is the big idea, that there are some things, and I think this is just true, like in our cultural age, with the, with the great freedom we have, there's great responsibility to be careful it's really easy, I think, in our, in our blessed um, political system to, to be tempted to put more of our hope in government than God. To put more of, I mean, and to where our anxiety is not based upon the real, or, or, or lack of anxiety, or our hope, we could even say, it is not contingent upon the sovereignty, the faithfulness, the, the rule of God and the reign of his kingdom. It's on our earthly kingdoms and how those kingdoms are going. So our anxiety kind of goes up and down based on how things are going. So, so we can't give to government what belongs to God. This is making sense? Whether that's our ultimate allegiance, whether that's our hope, whatever that may be, we, we give our hearts to Jesus, okay? Uh, that's how Jesus replies. That's, uh, that's it. I was like, do I have something else to say? Nope. Next point. Let's go to the Sadducees, all right? You guys are doing great. We're going to be out. We're going to be out, all right? Pharisees come to Jesus first. They try to trap him with this political question. He just gives this masterful, beautiful answer that also informs, it informs first how we should live our lives. God's image is on us. We give him our whole lives. It also should inform how we engage in the political system. We engage as those who, who engage as those who first give our whole lives to God. Okay. Then you get these other guys. The Pharisees come first, and now you get the Sadducees. They're like the Pharisees, but they're sad. Okay. That's funny. Um, the Sadducees come to him. They're the ones, now, the Sadducees, they're the, like, in this time, how do I say this? They're like, they're religious leaders as well. Financially, they're old money in that culture. They're old money, very wealthy, very affluent. With that affluence comes influence. They're involved in the religious system. They're the cultural elite. They're rich. They're powerful. But they're distinct from the Pharisees because theologically, Theologically, the Sadducees only accept the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the most important one, actually, for them. But, yeah, Deuteronomy, glad I remembered it. But they looked at the first five books, the Torah, of the Old Testament as the only books that are authoritative. And when you read through the first five, there's not a, there's, that, that lends itself to its own conversation, but it also led them to, as it says here, not believe in a resurrection because there's not much, if any at all, press, tremendous press on the resurrection in the first five books. I could think of a bunch immediately right now, but for them, the, the, most of, of, of the Torah was just about how to behave in this life. This life is all you have, and when you die, hopefully your works are remembered because you're gone. It's it. Dust of the earth. From dust you came to dust you'll go. You have no spirit. You have no soul. There's no life after death. You're dead and you're gone. Okay, so it's, a, it's like a, a, a religious version of, oh, what's the word for it? I forget the name of it, but eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's kind of the idea. For them, it's like obey the law and be a good person for tomorrow we die. I mean, and, and that's it and we're forgotten. So for them, they have no resurrection. Listen, this is important, which is why they're so sad, you see? Okay. 
They're so sad, you see. There's no... By the way, wouldn't you be? Shouldn't you be? Paul's like, if, if in this life all we have is just hope in this life, we're, we are of most men pitiful. That's pit- in fact, he says it's pitiable. It's a sad life. If all you have is your earthy life, the here and now, if there's no eternal, if nothing matters for eternity, if there's no hope to be resurrected, to be alive again after you die then, you know, YOLO. Make it count. We still saying that? Bringing it back, all right? But you get it, don't you? They're so, they're, they're, they're so frustrated even with Jesus because he's, Jesus is boldly teaching a, a resurrection. John 5, Jesus says a resurrection's coming. There's a day coming where, where everybody is going to be resurrected. Those who are in Christ, the righteous, will be resurrected to life. And those who, are, who have rebelled against God, who have rejected God, will be resurrected unto judgment. There is a resurrection coming, but they didn't believe this. So they come to Jesus. In light of this, they, they try to trap him with a biblical question. They go, okay, well, if this is true, then riddle me this, Jesus. He says, teacher. By the way, this is sarcastic. They're like, rabbi. That's what they're saying. Okay? Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother... should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay. I don't know if this is your family plan, but this is in Deuteronomy. This is actually straight out of the law. And I want to give you some insight on this. This kind of can seem, I don't know, maybe this seems sexist. or what it, what it, I can understand some of the ideas behind it. But in that culture, um, high honor culture, high family loyalty. So the, the idea here is you, you would um, you'd have a, you'd, you're, you would marry your brother's wife, and you would name your son after him. It's a way to honor him and carry on his legacy. It was also a way to provide for the widow. If you ever read the book of Ruth, this is all about this. But I want, to sh- I want you to see it in Deuteronomy. Let me just read this as fast as I can to you. It's not even a, it's not even a big verse. And I, it's not like I have three slides that look like this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if brothers dwell together, meaning if they're alive at the same time, everybody back then dwelt together, all right? And one of them dies, this is from the law, and the person who died has no son. And the widow, of the, dead, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife. And This is so great. You should read the Old Testament. I'll give you a reason why. And perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the man of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. We just talked about that. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, he's like, oh, he died, crap, all right? <laughs> then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders, guys, I got to talk to you, and say, my husband's brother, this is what the, the woman will do, sorry. She'll go up and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. This is a big, this is a major act of dishonor, okay? I'm making it funny because I'm, I'm sorry. But... He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. So now the elders are like, bro, you got you to gotta do, do your brother, a, you know, a solid here. If he stands firm and says, I don't want to marry her. She was my sister-in-law. I, like, I know her. This is weird. Then his brother's wife shall come to him. And this is 
amazing. The brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. I love the NIV. <laughs> in the NIV, uh, let me see if I have it here. I don't have it. I think it's like the, the, his name shall be, uh, oh, here it is. The man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. I love that. Okay. Like this is, so like if, you know, all the Jews knew this. They're like, oh, dude, that, that's the famous one from Deuteronomy where Moses like gives permission for, for the chick to like rip the guy's sandal off. And by the way, if a guy ever denies you, like who knows, maybe you can use the word and just use this and say, you know, you unsandaled one. But um, so, so this is the basis that they're coming to Jesus. They've got a deep biblical question. They're like, okay, if this is true, so if, if a man has a wife and he dies and there's no children and, and the law obligates the brother of that man, to marry the woman, to, to bear her children. So what they do is they take this law, and they're so sad, you see. They, this is what they do. They create the, the, the most horrible hypothetical situation. Don't you love those questions? Let me, let me refute what you're saying with this ridiculous hypothetical scenario that doesn't exist, but it could exist, and if it does, how is that true? So that's what they try to do. And it's like the saddest story. That's why they're so sad, you see. It says this. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died. He didn't leave any offspring. It happened the third time. This poor lady. And she hasn't sandal-slapped any of them yet. The seven had her. So seven, this is horrible. Okay. <laughs> Why are you guys making us think about this? The seventh guy dies. So she's lost seven of her husbands, no kids. Oh, yeah, and then she dies. It's like, okay. The end? Like, it's, what is this? You know what I'm saying? It's like a Sundance Film Festival movie. It's so depressing. Okay. Here's the question, though. In the resurrection, if there's a resurrection, so here's the big question. We finally get to this. When they rise... Here's the question. Whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. And I picture that one of them said this and then like gave high five to the guy. They're like, yeah, you did it, okay? Well, whose wife is she going to be? If there's a resurrection and she's had all these wives and you say that there's life after death, whose wife is she going to be? Um, Jesus begins by replying like this. This is really helpful even for us today. He answers and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? Some translations, the word mistaken literally means deceived. You're tricked and you're thinking you're in error theologically because here is why we will always be in error. We do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. How, how, can, I, how can I stay in truth and prevent deception in my life and falling into error? Know the scriptures and know the character of God. Know God and know his word. Know who, know who God is through his word, especially. And this was the issue for them. Now, here's what's interesting. When Jesus says this, this, like, talk about if the, if the whole, like, vineyard parable wasn't offensive, this was the slam of all slams. Because the Sadducees were supposed to be the experts in the, in the book. The, the, this was their field of expertise, the scriptures. And Jesus is like, you don't know the, this is like, Going up to a barista and being like, you must, you must not know coffee. Is that what it is? Or like a SpaceX engineer or something and being like, oh, you, you don't get physics. That's, you, you must not get physics. Do you know what I'm saying? 
or an accountant, you, don't, you must not know numbers, okay? I mean, this is what's happening here. This is significant. This is offensive. Now, but this is true, and, and, and this is a sad thing for this to be true of someone who should know the Bible and should know the character of God. There's nothing more tragic than when someone who should know the Scripture. I'm not saying someone who shouldn't. But when, when a Christian's been raised in the church their whole life and they should know the scripture and they should know the character of God, but they don't, and they're in error, that's, to me, that's like the biggest loss. Like for you to come to church here at Solos for however many years and sit under the teaching of the word and still be in error theologically, usually this happens because, and this is why it happened for the Sadducees, and the reason is because they didn't go to the Bible with fresh eyes to, to, to be taught in truth who God is and what he says, but there's a tendency we all have to do this. They brought their own cultural presuppositions, our own lenses to the text, and they were reading it through their traditions. They were reading it through what, this is how you have to read that. This is how you have to, and, and that can happen, that happens, um, that's happening in secular culture right now. The Bible is read through the culture of secularism <laughs> and trying to be understood through that lens. So it's like trying to critique the Bible through the, the world as it's represented in secular culture. But this happens in the church all the time. We read the Bible through our own cultural lenses, our own church cultural lenses, our own religious cultural lenses. And this is a sad thing to happen, to be in error, because you didn't actually come before God with a heart that says, Lord, teach me your truth. Lead me in truth. I want to know the truth. Not what someone says, not, one, not, not just my assumptions, but the truth. Amen? This is really important. Jesus gives them a simple response that they should be able to find in Scripture. For when they rise from the dead, first thing he says is, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. Like, this is his first answer. He's like, well, he, to, to answer your question about how there can be um, a resurrection, how that can be true, but you have a woman who had seven husbands, and that can create like a problem. Well, Jesus is like, well, it's, it's easy. There's no marriage. <laughs> Next question. You know, it's like, it's what he could have said. Uh, but it's, it's really important and insightful. Um, th this is um, one of the main places in scripture that we learn this truth. I was talking to Brittany about this this week, actually. She's like, oh, she goes, are you sad? Are you sad that we're not gonna be married in heaven? She's like, maybe we can like be neighbors or something. Like she was actually, we were talking about this. Um, and yeah, scripture teaches that, that marriage is something first that God instituted at the beginning of time that existed to carry forward the creational mandate together to cultivate the earth for the glory of God and the good of humanity. When Jesus returns, the new heavens and new earth is going to be in perfect working condition. So there won't need to be that marriage partnership. Marriage was also for companionship, which, by the way, I want to just emphasize this. Husbands and wives, you won't, whatever your relationship looks like in heaven, it can't look like less, if that makes sense, like a lesser version of your earthly relationship. I know you have a lot of questions about that. I don't have all the answers for you. We have the same, but we're going off the same source text here. But you can be guaranteed that the companionship that you're going to share in heaven is greater than any companionship you shared here on earth. And that's good for me to know. <laughs> it's good for Brittany to know, too. She's happy about that. Um, um, but also, there, there's an idea here that marriage here in, in the temporal, in this moment in time, marriage between a, a man and a woman, a husband who loves his wife sacrificially, and a wife who honors the Lord through following her husband's leadership, that, that model exists to be a mirror to the world of the gospel. It's an evangelistic, it's a gospel presentation. That's what marriage is supposed to be, okay? Um, every time I do a wedding, I, I've actually married a handful of couples in this room, and you probably remember at your wedding, 
uh, what, what I reminded you of was that at the end of the day, the, the picture going forward is it's no longer your love that sustains your commitment to one another. It's this covenant that sustains your love. It's backwards. So even on your bad hair days, love continues. Love goes on. And that's, that's a lot like the love of God. It's a lot like the love of God. You know, aren't you glad that the way you're acting doesn't determine whether or not God loves you today? He just loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Because he is love. Not because you've earned it, but, but because it's, it's his unchanging character. You change, he doesn't. And that's what marriage exists to be a picture of. So Jesus is like, it's, it's, it's something that has a purpose here and now, but it won't be for all of eternity. So that's the first. But then he says, even the, the deeper point, he says, but concerning the dead, and then he makes, I just love that Jesus gives us the simple hope, that they rise. You better believe there's a resurrection. Concerning the dead, those who are in faith, they rise. Have you not read now, this is amazing that Jesus, he gives them like a simple philosophical response, but now he's going to give them the biblical response. But where does he go in the scriptures to answer their question? He goes to the book of Moses. He goes to Exodus. He goes to the second. He knows that those first five books are all they acknowledge. So Jesus is like, and I think that's really important, by the way, when someone's coming into your world asking you a question, a lot of times in the church, the reason why we don't help people come to faith is because we want them to come into our world. Are you with me? Like, we, like if you want to, you know, you've got to play by my rules if we're going to play this game. So you've got to believe this, 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 and then we can talk. What is that? That's not love. That's not love for neighbor. That's not Paul who says, I've become all things to all men that I might win some. So Jesus goes into their world. He's like, I, and so part of me loving you is not just that I got to know, know my Bible. I need to know you and know your world because I love God, but I love you. So I need to know where you're at. And I got to see how Christ comes to bear on your life. And, and so Jesus does this so beautifully. He uses their, their model of authority and quotes right from Moses in the burning bush passage in Exodus 3, and he reminds them, and this is like, by the way, the passage in the Old Testament where God reveals himself to Moses for who he is as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I didn't even share it, but the key word that Jesus uses is I am. These are three men that have passed away, but God doesn't say I was. I was the God of you know, I think of my mom. Yesterday we celebrated her birthday. She's been in heaven now for almost 13 years. And I'm just, I rejoice because I remember that, that God wasn't just, you know, he, there wasn't a point where he said, I, I, I was the God of Barbara. He is the God of my mom right now. That there's life in Christ. I, I am the God of Abraham. He passed away, but I'm still his God. He's still alive. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Why are you that God? Because he's not the God of the dead, but those who are in him are living, both now and for eternity. He's the God of living people. This is the gospel. Jesus doesn't come to make bad-behaving people good-behaving people. He comes to take dead people and make them living people, to give them abundant life. There's a difference between existing and living. And he's the God of the living. He wants to make you alive in him, to quicken your heart, to quicken your heart for, to the things of God. Not be dead to him and alive to the things of this world, but to be crucified to the world in the flesh and alive to God. He's the God of the living. And he gives us eternal life. He's the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And fill in the blank, who is that loved one that you miss that's no longer with us physically, 
But, but you need to remember today what, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We are confident. we got to be confident of this, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're more than an earth suit. You're more than a body. You're more than physical. You, as C.S. Lewis says, I don't have a soul. He says, I am a soul. I have a body. This is, this is a temporary dwelling, and that's what Scripture promises. For those who are in Christ, eternal life is the hope. Um, and, and not in just some disembodied way, but Jesus, you know, Jesus dies. By the way, the resurrection of Jesus, that could have been just the answer. He could have just said, here, just check out what happens on Sunday. Could have said that. You probably said it better, though, so Lord, I'm just saying you could have. I'm not saying you should have. Okay. Um, his resurrection is the basis of our certainty. His resurrection is the basis of our certainty that we one day will experience resurrection in him. And that our bodies, as Paul says, will be conformed to his glorious body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our earthly bodies, when we die, if, for those that are in Christ, our earthly bodies are like a seed that gets planted in the earth and it, and it bears up into a, a tree that's a new, a new body in Christ, a resurrected body. Uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to get into end time stuff, you know, just some more dense or light, you know, airy stuff. In a couple weeks, we're getting to the end of all the age. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about the resurrection that's to come, but Jesus affirms that. And then lastly, let's close with this last one, the scribes. The scribes are the last group that come to him. We see he replies to the Pharisees, he replies to the Sadducees, and then he replies, lastly, to the scribes. And uh, just looking at my time, uh, worship team, I will be closing in prayer today and just we will be worshiping in a closing prayer. Okay. Um, it says, one of the scribes came to him, and having heard them reasoning together, they perceived that he answered him well. So at this point, like, their, their plan A just falls flat. Their plan B doesn't, doesn't accomplish the job. Jesus is just, he has the tongue of, of wisdom. And he knows the word of God. He knows the character of God. He knows the truth. And so they're unable to catch him in his words. They're not able to outwit him. And then there's the scribes, who were the experts in the law. And they look on, and, and the scribes, though Jesus goes on to rebuke them, along with the religious leaders later in this chapter, the scribes, this, this scribe in particular, one of the scribes, is kind of isolated as someone who's kind of interested. Is he surrendered and willing to give his life to Jesus? We don't know, but he's interested. Jesus ends up telling him that he gets close to the kingdom. Which is, we don't want that, by the way. We, we don't want to just get close to the kingdom. We want to come all the way into the kingdom. But this is an interesting guy. He hears them reasoning, and he looks on at Jesus, and he's just impressed with how he's answering their questions. And so he brings him the, the classic biblical question. This guy's an expert in the, in the Torah. Which, out of all 613 laws in the Torah, which is the most important? I mean, there's a lot of laws there. Six, like I said, I just mentioned that, 613. Um, 248 of those laws are positive thou shalls that God gives his people. 365, one for every day of the year, of those laws are negative, they're thou shall nots. 613 of these laws, thou shalls, mostly thou shall nots, what you shouldn't do. That's wisdom, right? Here's what you don't do, okay? And they go, out of all of these, which is the most important? And in that culture, you, you have people in, in that culture who are more concerned with the law of God than the God of the law. They're all about rule keeping, controlling people through rule keeping, and gaining uh, cultural standing through behavior. Like if I keep these rules, then I'm 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 high up on the spiritual social ladder. We we still think that way too. Like if I'm like this, I'm here. 
oh, I, st- I did this sin, now I'm here. You ever done that? That doesn't exist in Christ, by the way. It's all grace. Sinners saved by grace. But in that culture, they just had their, they had their laws. And so I love this, like, that's a lot of laws. 613, this is kind of how I am. Like, oh, that's a lot. I don't know if I can keep all those. Is there one that's, like, really important? Maybe just one. I'll just do one, you know? Out of all those, there's, like, there's like one, like, law of the road that I can try to obey. Like, that's a lot of rules, okay? Um, Jesus answered them. You know this. He quotes the Shema, the first of all commandments, right from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Listen up. This has always been God's heart for his people. I, I read this recently. I found this out this week. This is really interesting. Um, pastor named John Tyson posted this. I, I never knew this. He said that, that the word listen, the command listen, appears 1,500 times in Scripture. And, and if you look at the totality of what God says to his people, his number one complaint is they don't listen. So first thing is like, hey, listen up. Incline your ear. For the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and he alone you shall love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. This is the most important thing. The, the commandments are ultimately, he's bringing it back to the heart of the commandment, which is love. And the second like it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. What they had done with the heart of God and made the heart of God all about law, Jesus brings the law back to the heart of God, which is rooted in love. The heart of God, let me say this again, towards you is not rooted in law. The heart of God towards you is rooted in love. He first loves you before you love him. He first loves you. That's how he changes you. He doesn't change change you by giving you new rules to follow. New year resolutions for this year. Now I'm finally going to keep them. New spiritual resolutions. He changes you by loving you first, before you do a single thing for him. For God demonstrates his own love toward you and me, and that while we were not keeping the law, while we, are, while we were and are sinning against him, he loves us. He loves you. Okay? I hate to break it to you, there's nothing you can do to change that. There's no, no new rules you could keep to make him love you more. There's no new sins that you can go back to or old sins that's going to make him love you less. He loves you forever and always. It's an everlasting covenantal love. He loves you. When you get that, do you know what happens? You start to love him. I start to keep the rules? No, you love him. And love overflows certainly into the way you live your life. His love transforms you. you. You begin to love him with all of you even. Every part of your being, as Jesus says, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You, you love him with your thoughts. You think about him. You love him with your emotions when you worship him. You, you can't make people worship. Only love can do that. You start to love him with your strength and your time and your efforts and your service. And most of all, you love him with your heart. You love him back from the very part of his being that loves you. His love changes you and just makes you love him. Like, can I just simplify the Christian life for you today? God loves you, and he's transforming you to love him. And that doesn't mean go love him now, do love. No, it means be loved. And watch his love transform you. And and Jesus says it's also going to transform not just your vertical relationship with God, but it's connected also to how you treat people. 1 John is all about this. When I encounter God's love, I begin to show love towards others. I, I begin to love them differently than I am normally able to. Because I have a normal ability for love. Anybody else? 
I even got like a good, I got a good patient meter, but there's definitely an end to that. There's a marker where I'm like, oh, we've hit it. We've hit it. What is it? We're there. That's all I know, okay? But his love changes us. Like being loved by God is love pouring, being poured out in your heart. Jesus simplifies this. and um, This is where he lands. And I love this. The, he, the, the scribe says, teacher, you've spoken your word. There is one God. There is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Like to live changed by love, toward love, for God and for others is what it's all about. Paul says that the whole Christian life is summarized in just that word, love. That's it. Fruit of the Spirit's love. If I do all these things, but I don't have love, I'm missing it. Being loved by God, loving him back, and loving others, that's the most important thing. That's preeminent. More than all these sacrifices that we can do without love. Now, Jesus saw that he answered. He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then here's where it ends. I'll close here. After that, the questions ended. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> um, after this moment, they're like, it doesn't look like we're going to outsmart him. <laughs> it doesn't look like our questions are working. It doesn't look like we're going to trap him. Maybe he is Lord. And this is the point where you think all these people would bow their knee and worship him because of his truth. But fortunately, our hearts can trick us and deceive us and it wants a lot of other things. And so that doesn't happen. Jesus says to them, I love this, he ends with a question. He says, he goes back to the Psalms. This is really important. He says, the scribes say about the Christ that he's the son of David, the son. They humanize him. That's, that's what it's like in your culture. But then he says to them, why then does David, in the Old Testament, say by the Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies your footstool. And he says this, um, David calls the Messiah Lord. How then how then is he his son? Okay, so Jesus ends all this. This is really powerful, and he says this. The Messiah is not a mere man, as the scribes say, the son of David. David calls him Lord. This is powerful. Jesus is affirming who he is here. I'm the Messiah. And he's saying this. I am not a servant to your questions. You've humanized me to the point to where you've removed my divinity. You've made me a mere man. He's Lord. Now, this is what's amazing about God. God welcomes our questions. He, he says, come, let's reason together. You have Come, let's talk. Maybe today you're like, this is a whole new Christianity where you can think. I didn't know that. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start thinking about Jesus. And God says, come. But Jesus makes a point here that there's a way, Paul says this in the last days, that men will be always learning but never able to come to the truth. Because th there's a posture you can have toward God where you make him a servant of your riddles and your questions, and you'll, you'll only follow him if he answers this enigma. You'll only follow him if he solves this problem. And, and like, lest this is just philosophical, just to get heart level, maybe there's been some real pain and tragedy in your life, and you've been demanding an explanation from God. I want to just say, like, what makes God so good is he says, come to me in your pain. I'm here to love you and care for you and heal you. But listen, you, on this side of heaven, you may never get the answer to the question you're asking. Are you okay with that? Do you have enough evidence to trust Jesus like these guys do? Follow him.
And are you able to see him with your questions, not just as some servant that you'll follow with the answers, but you see him ultimately as Lord, who says bring your questions to me. Amen?